Well, hello and welcome to a very extra special Fire John Air bonus episode yet again. Um, so this is pretty much my last thing to do before I am going to firmly ensconce myself on the couch downstairs and watch films non-stop for the next couple of days. It is the 23rd of December 2022 And what I have for you for this bonus episode is something quite unique. It's a recording of a lecture I did on the 6th of October in Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. And this is a lecture I delivered on the subject of the child ballads in Ireland. Um, Subject I'm very fond of, but the good people of Johns Hopkins University were kind enough to provide me with a recording of the event. I can't go any further without extending a very, 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 very big thanks to... Jared Hickman and all the hard work he went through like it took us quite a while to organize this lecture and the subsequent lecture tour that I embarked upon um but Jared really went all out on this and put so much work into organizing it and treated me so absolutely well while I was there I felt like a king um so thanks a million for that again Jared for the rest of you I can only say I hope you have a wonderfully peaceful and lovely and cozy Christmas time and New Year holidays whatever you want to call it and that 2023 is fruitful and satisfying for all of you and thanks so much for all your support during the year with fire drawn air it's been so much appreciated and I'll see you all at some stage in early 2023 until then I hope you enjoyed the lecture and take care of yourselves okay good luck Hey, hey, everybody, how we doing? In this big old auditorium. We happy few who are like privileged to be here. Um, I'm Jared Hickman, I'm an associate professor of English uh, here at Johns Hopkins, and the proud and pleased it can be organizer of this event, but it takes a lot of people uh, to bring a man in demand such as Ian Lynch all the way across the Atlantic. So several thanks are in order. Um, I wanna thank the Sensorium of Reading, Uh, First and foremost, Shane Butler, Chris Cannon, and Mary Favrette for their very generous support in making this possible. I want to thank the Alexander Grass Humanities Institute, Bill Eggington, um, the director who's here for uh, for their support, and my beloved home department of English, uh, uh, Sally Hoff and Dominique Durow, especially for all their logistical savvy and moral support during the process of planning this, and our marvelous graduate students who helped me today lug the child ballads into the the lobby, which you should go take a look at. Um, 
Speaking of, since their name didn't appear in the promotional materials, I also want to make a point of thanking the uh, Winston Tabb Special Collections Research Center, Joseph Pl uh, Plaster and Heidi Herr, who've made possible that display uh, out in the lobby that I just alluded to, uh, of the quarto edition of four of the five volumes of the so-called Child Ballads that we're going to be hearing about today. Uh, I'm going to ever so briefly introduce those en route to introducing Ian Lynch, our esteemed presenter this afternoon. So when Daniel Coit Gilman set out in the mid-1870s to bring into being on American soil an institution devoted to postgraduate education on the German model, this institution, in case you were wondering, uh, he knew that he needed to recruit a dream team of scholars. And at the top of his list was Francis James Child, then professor of rhetoric and oratory at Harvard University, Child had made his, his fame producing scholarly editions of late medieval and early modern English literature, Chaucer, Spencer, Shakespeare, which had led him on to the evergreen ballad tradition, the relics of ancient, poetry, of English, ancient English poetry, as Thomas Percy had called them in 1765. So in 1875, Gilman offered Child a professorship at the soon-to-be-minted Johns Hopkins University. And Child's delicate response in a December 19, uh, 1875 letter invites our scrutiny. So this is Child. The obstacles to my leaving Cambridge, I, don't, I just did an accent when I started to speak in, in like New, New England Brahmin, even though Child wasn't a New England Brahmin. Uh, the obstacles to my leaving Cambridge are very numerous. As I told you, a larger salary is a consideration that my circumstances will not allow me to make light of. The liberal plan of your university presents attractions at least equal to a better salary. Just say salary, salary, salary over and over again. You see, therefore, that I do not find it easy to decline the honor which you offer me. If you will take off one half my years and the obligations to other people which I have incurred, I will accept your proposal with delight. So to this day, the only way to, to get a big raise in pay and perks in this profession is to leverage an offer from another institution. And Child seems to have done just that with Harvard, which in order to retain him, did nothing less than invent a new academic discipline. Child became the nation's first professor of English. And the first fruits of his well-supported research in this new discipline was his famous collection, The English and Scottish Popular Ballads, an achievement so defining that these ballads are still routinely referred to as the child ballads. Like one of the possessive lovers featured in the ballad tradition, Ch Gilman couldn't quite quit Child. After Child turned down the professorship, Gilman offered a short-term lectureship, seemingly in the hope that if he could just get Child to Johns Hopkins, he would convince him to stay. Child came, taught a few courses, including one on the ballad tradition, and then promptly returned to his posh gig at Harvard. Gilman invited Child to the university's third anniversary celebration, and Child politely declined. As late as 1885, Gilman was fedding Child with gifts, a copy of a recent English translation of the Song of Roland, uh, to which Child responded with a hastily written and horribly belated thank you note, the tardiness of which he blamed on a bad case of gout. Uh, sure, Professor Child, right? It's the, the 19th century equivalent of saying your message went into my spam folder. And after Child, the never Hopkins professor, died in 1896, the university nevertheless enlisted some advanced students of English 
to put on a symposium on child's life and work. So suppose we fulfill Gilman's heartfelt wish by imaginatively projecting ourselves into that nook in the multiverse where child found himself young and free enough and fledgling Johns Hopkins free-handed enough to come to this institution to produce the English and Scottish popular ballads. If you pursue this thought experiment with me, you will find yourself in a position to apprehend the presentation to which you are about to be treated as simultaneously a fitting inauguration and a properly Irish subversion of something that well could have been the annual Francis James Child Memorial Lecture at Johns Hopkins <laughs> University. But one does not need such an elaborate counterfactual, however well-researched and presented, to justify inviting Ian Lynch to our campus. Ian Lynch is reason to invite Ian Lynch, well, anywhere. Uh, and I'm so pleased that it is here. He's embarking on a series of academic engagements that I hope will bring his scholarship and his art to a wider audience. Ian Lynch is what Antonio Gramsci called an organic intellectual, a dynamic vector for the somehow radical dreams of the people, simply for conditions that sustain life and enable graceful, soulful brooking of its inescapable vicissitudes, dreams that often first materialize in song, particularly in Ireland, where the people always sing even when they're losing, to quote a pitch-perfect lyric from Cold Old Fire, a song by Ian's band, Lincoln. As his Mlit in Irish folklore and erstwhile lectureship at University College Dublin and his can't-miss podcast, Fire Draw Near, attest he's an incredibly accomplished scholar of the Irish musical tradition. And as the accolades showered on his band, Lincoln underscore, he's also one of the most creative, cutting-edge practitioners of that tradition working today and perhaps any day. Nothing less than a thorough exploration and devastation of folks' most conventional tropes is Lincoln's impressive game, Jude Rogers wrote in his five-star review for The Guardian of Lincoln's most recent album, 2019's The Live Long Day. No sooner did tickets go on sale this past week for two Lincoln shows at Dublin's iconic Vicar Street venue than they sold out. It is thus a real privilege for us to be hosting Ian Lynch for, who's going to stop me from saying it, the inaugural Francis James Child Memorial Lecture at Johns Hopkins University. Please join me in welcoming him. lot to live up to there now. Um, well, it's a very, very great pleasure to be here at this inaugural lecture. And um, just what an amazing opportunity to come all the way over here to Baltimore from Dublin to talk about one of my favorite subjects of all time, and that is the existence of the child ballads in the Irish tradition, which hasn't been very well understood, I think. Um, until very recently, um, and it's still something that there's not that many people working on out there. But maybe to start off, I am going to talk a little bit about this man, um, Thomas Moran. He was from Mohill in County Leitrim, and I want to play a little clip of him singing a song that he called Strawberry Lane, but which we know to be a version of Child Ballad Number 2, The Elfin Night. Now as you are going down Strawberry Lane, Every rose grows merry betimes. It's there you will meet a pretty young man and tell him that he's a true lover of mine. And tell him to get me a holland shirt 
Every rose through the merry be chimes, without stitch or same or needle work, and then he will be a true lover of mine. And tell him to wash it in yon spring well. Every rose was merry be chimes, where water near fell, nor water near sprung, and then he will be a true lover of mine. And tell him to dry it on yon. So when Seamus Ennis, the great Irish musician and folk song collector, came to record songs from Thomas Moran in the early 1950s, I think it's fair to say that he wouldn't have been like totally aware of the amount of English and Scottish songs that were kind of extant in the Irish tradition. Um, he asked Thomas, where did he get such an amount of these songs in his repertoire? He said, have you ever worked in England? And Thomas said, well, apart from a couple of weeks foolishness, I was never in that country. He said, where, where did you get your songs? And he said, I got them off a neighbour of mine who never so much as crossed a cow track in his life. He's never, never left the locality at all. Um, he said, these songs came in here in the by roads in Cromwellian times, and the condition of the by roads was so bad that they never made their way out again. <laughs> and it's these by roads I really want to look at today to examine them and their contours and see what they are, see how the songs got in why they stuck around, and what happened to them once they were there. So the number of Irish ballads in the Irish tradition, like I said, was something that wasn't very well understood around the time when Seamus Ennis was collecting. And to be honest, it wasn't even that well understood when I wrote the blurb to this lecture, because if you'll see this list here, I had a very conservative estimate that I've heard much, much better scholars than me throw around, which is around 50 ballads. But on casting the net a little bit wider, I found the number here is 81. Um, so it's really, really quite a substantial amount of ballads of English and Scottish provenance that ended up being sung in Ireland. Um, some of these, quite a lot, have been recorded in full. We have transcriptions and audio recordings. Some of them, maybe only fragments came down. Some of them, maybe there's only mentions of them in historical texts. Some of them were translated into the Irish language. Some of them were in Hiberno-English, with maybe place names or personal names changed to sound more local. And then some of them retained the broad lowlands Scots that they first had when they made their way across the Irish Sea. Now, remarkably, and this is one thing that still really fascinates me, owing to, I suppose, the conservative nature of the Irish tradition and oral culture in Ireland, there are a couple of these ballads that only survived in Ireland after they had died out everywhere else, and they'd long been believed to be extinct. And they turned up due to the work of folk song collectors like Tom Munley in the 20th century. And I want to look at a few of them later on. Um, the bottom line, really, to all this is that the so-called child ballads were alive and well in Ireland and have been for the last couple of hundred years. And to this very day as well, I would say there's still a remarkable number of people that are drawn towards singing these songs. Um, but that uh, was a really great, actually, introduction there about child and some information <laughs> that I wasn't aware of. But... Um, I mean, I'm sure everybody here is familiar to some degree with Professor Francis James Child and his work, or at least you'll be familiar with hearing terms like child number 84, child number 100, child number 21. Um, Frank Hart, the Dublin singer, 
used to comment that it was like working in a bleeding orphanage. <laughs> but um, let's say I want to keep, basically keep definitions quite simple today and for all intents and purposes just say that a child ballad is basically simply a ballad that is contained in child's work, the English and Scottish popular ballads. It might be more than that, but it's definitely no less. Likewise, the term ballad, there's a lot of different understandings of the term ballad, and it's a word that goes way back. But today, we'll just use it to describe a song that is narrative in form and also has a stanzaic structure to it. Um, I don't know if I need to say much more about child, um, except for the fact that it was really as his work as um, a literary historian and an editor of English poetry that he first came to upon the ballad form um, and I think it would be safe to say that maybe he understood them more as as poetry and literature rather than pieces of work that were sung like that would be the kind of side of things that I would be coming from um, in the Irish tradition um, but I think his ideas about ballads, you can see how they really developed over the years. Um, his first publication in the 1850s, the, it was just called English and Scottish Ballads. Um, that was really a different kind of work altogether. I think it contained much more of a general kind of rag bag of different items. There was lays, romances, ballad sheet songs, modern compositions, different kinds of things. and. I suppose, um, like Jared mentioned earlier, he was influenced by Thomas Percy and other kinds of editors. But because these editors had kind of played free and easy with the texts that they were using, they were not above collating certain texts, changing them around, kind of just doing their own thing with it according to their own aesthetical whims and tastes. And I think Child began to become desirous of printing material that was much closer to the source. And in this, he would have been influenced by scholars like William Motherwell um, or Sven Grundtvig, the Danish folk song scholar, um, who they were much more concerned with printing texts that were authentic. They wanted to print them exactly as they had come down. They wanted to print every version that they had come across, even if these were just fragmentary in form. Um, there's the man there himself, in case he didn't know what he looked like. And a quote here from Motherwell, quite a bit before child's time, stating that the whole duty of a collector of traditionary ballads is to print them exactly as they were said or sung, to mention the district of the country where he recovers the version, and to abstain from all conjectural emendation of the text. And now, this, I think this is quite remarkable that this is in 1828, and it would be quite close to how like, folk song collectors would have viewed the subject even in the last 50 years. So to this end, the English and Scottish popular ballads um, was published between 1882 and 1898. Um, and in this, child decided to print every version of a ballad he could find, like I said, even if it was a fragment, like in the case of ballad number 21, The Maid and the Palmer. He includes one version that was printed in Percy's Reliques and then another three-verse uh, fragmentary form that was collected from the oral tradition in Scotland. Um, but it's often said that any student not really familiar with Child's work could do a lot worse than to acquaint themselves with his introduction to ballad number four, Lady Isabel and the Elfin Knight. It's a really, really remarkable piece of writing, 33 pages in length, and he's jumping all around the globe, comparing like different ballads from different parts of the world in different languages, talking about parallels in folk literature, 
And I think that him seeing that these, um, like these plot lines and these kind of archetypes had a place in folk literature to him was proof that they were truly popular. His, um, his use of the word popular, I suppose, would be very much in line with how we use the term traditional these days in that um, these items were old, they had circulated in oral culture, they were once widespread, they were written in the vernacular form. So that's what he's really talking about there with the use of the word popular. Now, unfortunately, because Child died before he could complete his definition of what constituted uh, um, absolutely traditional ballad, it's given um, the room for scholars to really argue over these things for years and years. And um, it's a very, very like, interesting area and something I could talk about for a long time, but I don't really have the time to go into here. Suffice to say that there are some scholars, um, like Thelma James and people like that, who see Child's collection as being very arbitrary, like a, just a, a crazy mix of all different like, genres of songs. And then there are others who say that like uh, Sigrid Reverts um, in kind of more modern times, who say that, yeah, Child, he definitely had a strict definition in his mind of what constituted a folk ballad. And in order to see what this is, all you have to do is look at his collection. Um, but it's a really interesting area to get into, like I said, largely outside the scope of today's presentation in which I really want to look at the existence of these songs in Ireland. Now, interestingly, I think Child really suspected that there was songs of this kind to be found in Ireland, um, and he said as much on a number of occasions. He, I mean, he was, wasn't much of a collector himself, and as usual, he kind of restricted his collecting efforts to exhorting others to go out and collect on his behalf. Um, he did this by posting circulars in a publication called Notes and Queries. And in 1880 and 1881, he talked about experiences that people had hearing. Um, there was one situation he talked about where there was a group of kids on the streets of New York. They were singing a version of the ballad Sir You. And this was traced back to the Irish grandmother of one of the children who was living in a cabin near Central Park. Um, he also... Yeah, the following quote here where he said, the remnants of Anglo-Irish balladry might with reasonable expectation be looked for in Ireland, where as yet no systematic attempt has been made to form a collection of that kind. So he definitely knew that there was something going on, and in the um, circulars that he put around, he was encouraging people to uh, ask people of Irish descent, Irish emigrants living in the United States, to try and find out if they had these songs or if they knew anything. But the interesting thing is that he actually received a lot of correspondence from a woman called Margaret Rayburn. She was living in Iowa at the time, but she had been born in County Mead. And she sent him in texts to no fewer than 20 different ballads. Um, but in the end, Child, he only published like six fragments that she sent in because he was very suspicious. Apparently, you can still go to the Child Collection in Harvard today and find Margaret Rayburn's papers and they're wrapped up with a little note in Child's handwriting that just says, some of these are quite suspicious. Uh, he, he wasn't into it at all. I think he, he was really sure of the fact that Margaret Rayburn had copied some of these songs from printed sources rather than actually learning the songs in the tradition like she had claimed. But she was adamant. She said, I heard them sometimes in the 60s and in the county of Mead, but from no person in particular. Everyone sung them, 
everyone knew fragments of them. Those traditionary ballads, all the modern Scotch songs of which we were passionately fond, constituted our capital in singing. She also said that they were very popular amongst the higher and the lower classes, so it really attests to their widespread popularity in Ireland at the time. But like I said, it wasn't until really the 20th century when these songs started popping up in any serious way uh, on the radars of song collectors like Hugh Shields and Tom Munnelly. Now, Tom Munnelly is really, he's one of my heroes. He was probably the greatest, the greatest collector of Irish traditional songs of all time. Um, he spent 40 years collecting around the country and he turned up some really, really remarkable discoveries in that time. Um, his collection is housed today in the National Folklore Collection in UCD, um, where I studied a number of years ago. But the reason I, br I bring him up here is because he talked in his writings, like Tom Munley's writings were amazing because they were all based on his own experiences as a collector in the field. Um, I mean, they were backed up by, he was obviously very well read he, and he read far and deep into the subject of traditional balladry. But I think this was tempered by just a very, very wide experience of collecting from all different types of people in Irish society over a period of 40 years, like I said. Um, but he talks about the fact that collectors in Ireland for a long time, because okay, if you think about it in Ireland, people were very aware the Irish language is dying out. Um, the National Folklore Collection and private collectors, they were going out, they were very concerned with like, making note of elements of oral culture in the Irish language because they're like, hey, this is like the oldest vernacular language in Europe, it's dying out, we need to get out there and we need to collect it before it's too late. So they were not interested in asking about Eng like ballads that came from England and Scotland, it just wasn't really in their scope at the time. And he talks about going to certain areas like in Cork where he knew there was collectors in the past and he knew that these songs were in the like repertoires of singers in the localities at those times but they just weren't collected for that very reason. So the first time that we get an actual mention of one of these ballads in Ireland um, is from the writings of Oliver Goldsmith, the Anglo-Irish writer. And he was writing in 1759, and, but he was talking about his childhood in County Longford in the 1730s. And he said, the music of the finest singer is dissonance to what I felt when our old dairy maid sung me into tears with Johnny Armstrong's Last Good Night or The Cruelty of Barbara Allen. Two child ballads right there. Probably the best known child ballad of all, Barbara Allen. Um, the American singer Jean Ritchie said that whenever she was going out collecting ballads, all she would do, she would ask somebody, oh, have you got any songs like Barbara Allen? And they would know instantly what they were talking about. It's almost like every traditional singer in the world has a version of Barbara Allen, at least one version of it. Um, so even though the first mention that we get of these ballads being sung in the country stems back to the 1730s, we, we do know they were probably most definitely being sung before then. And I would say the first time they came into the country in any significant way was with the settlers, the Scottish settlers who were coming in in the plantation period um, from like unofficially 1606, but officially from 1609. So the very early part of the 17th century, um, they were brought in by the English. It's all part of the English colonial project. You know, it's a whole other can of worms that we don't need to get into today. But um, 
they were definitely singing these songs. They very definitely had it in their repertoires. And we know this because if you look at even today, the songs that are of this type, the, the child ballads, we'll just call them, the ones that are extant in the Irish culture today and have been, the vast majority of them are Scottish rather than English. It's far more common that you would hear Scottish versions of these songs. Um, so this influx of Scottish settlers, it would have been like the first really significant entry of English, an English-speaking population into what was until then an Irish or Gaelic-speaking country. Um, and this is significant because Hugh Shields talks about this quite a bit, that the, probably the whole reason why the native Irish never took to the ballad form before this was because they had their own form of native narrative poetry in the form of the Fenian lays or the Ossianic lays. So these were basically, they were sung, um, they had a corresponding melody, they had a stanzaic form, and there were songs that told all about the exploits of Fionn and the Fina. Um, a lot more antique even than the ballads and I suppose much more inclined towards heroic poetry. Um, they were called Leahe in Ireland and Dune in Scotland, but the last one of those was collected in 1945 up in Donegal, and it's really interesting. It was in the same locality as people were, like a few child ballads were collected up around there at the same time, so there was a period of time in which the two of these different forms, very different forms of balladry coexisted side by side. Um, so while it's likely that the ballads would have stayed amongst the, the Scottish settlers at first, it wasn't long before they began to spread outwards and spread beyond the area of Ulster. And this is Hugh Shields here. He said, the ballads, which were originally the property of the planters, were adopted without distinction by the native Irish when they began to speak English. And I think that's, it kind of touches on a very important point there that I think traditional singers in all different times in Ireland, I don't think it has ever really mattered to them whether a song ultimately stemmed from Scotland or England or Ireland. I think it's, uh, it's true to say that people are drawn towards certain songs and they'll sing them. It hits them with an emotional resonance and they feel like there's some valid truth within the song. They'll sing it and that's what was happening in the 17th century just as it happens now. Um, but there's one really interesting case with a ballad called The Lass of Rock Royal. And you can kind of follow its route from the, um, the southwest of Scotland across the Irish Sea into the northeast of Ireland by the way that the name of the ballad changed over time. So first of all, The Lass of Rock Royal um, is what Child called it. Um, he had it as number 76. And that becomes the last of Rock Ryan until it comes over to North County Down where it's called Annie of Lochran. So the Rock Ryan has become Lochran. Annie of Lochran then becomes the last of Ockram, which you might recognize from um, The Dead by James Joyce. He makes quite good use of that ballad in the story. The last of Ockram then becomes the last of Arams and also the last of Ormond. And this is a very, I think, common phenomenon in all types of traditional song whereby you'll get name changes happening like personal names and um, place names just change like they transmute very easily to become things that are much more recognizable and localized to people's ears um, and i'm going to play a little clip now of the queen of muskerry's song as seamus ennis called her elizabeth cronin singing a version of this and you'll hear her refer to the lass of arams 
Mikorsan jumadaran, mikorsit vingsor, syuritren tlasuarons kemraping tumaidor. Laidon jufulison, en laidon an sleep, vartus langakorui rilaks, ruiving an the deep. Gomsal mitem lakers, dem brunar dem be, gomsal mitem vesters in my stable, this dear. Glail range over valleys, and over mountains of weed, glail find the loss of arms, and I lie by her side. So that was Elizabeth Cronin there. But one other way that these ballads came into the country was through Irish people actually going to work over in Scotland, the seasonal workers. Um, a lot of these workers would have come from Donegal, but also as far south as Mayo and even Galway in some cases. But basically they would have been people who had small subsistence holdings at home going over to dig potatoes over in Scotland and for this reason they were called tatty hokers. And the you can read about this in the autobiographies of some people. There's a fellow called Paddy Gallagher from County Donegal, and he made his way over to do the seasonal work for a number of years, and he talked about the importance that song had for these men. Um, he talks about his first night being over in Scotland and sitting up with a group of Scottish and Irish men, and they were singing these songs to each other and singing songs about the Fina, singing Irish songs, Scottish songs, and just in the same way as like sailors at sea for a long time, they would have absorbed each other's repertoires just from being around it so much. So you would have had those lads then coming home and singing the songs that they learnt over there. Um, so the, you, can, you can kind of see this really clearly in the history of one ballad, that's the Braise of Yarrow, um, ballad number 214, whereby the only place in Ireland that exists outside of Ulster is in these areas where these seasonal workers were going over. But one other ballad that was brought back to the country in this way was False Lover John. Uh, False Lover John is a version of Lady Isabel and the False Knight. Um, no, Lady Isabel and the Elfin Knight, sorry, which is the one I was talking about with the really amazing introduction. Um, so this song, it became very well known. Corny McDade, he's actually the man who brought it back from Scotland and began to sing it. So this was in the 20th century, this happened. Um, Seasonal workers, I suppose, would have been going over to Scotland from the early 19th century on. I think it was after the Napoleonic Wars where it became like a significant thing and people had to undertake more work like this in order to survive. But um, I'm going to sing a version of this song now in a minute. But first, I just want to talk about some of the, um, I suppose, the characteristics of child ballads that people talk about. Like there's all kinds of great stuff going on in these ballads, if you look at them in a certain way, there's like incremental repetition, parallelism of speech and language. Um, you know, the ballad always starts in media res, or you know, people talk about it like being a play that starts in the third act. And um, there's the impersonality of approach, there's the use of commonplaces, all these kind of things. Um, so the, the one that I want to mention that pops up in this song, I'm gonna give away a little bit of the story before I start to sing it because um, well, I'm just trying to add to the intrigue, really. But the ballad scholar Gordon Hall Gerald, 
He coined this term parallelism of speech and action. And you see it quite a lot in these ballads. It's where somebody like talks about doing it and then the very next stanza is the, the same, you know, it uses the same words and the same terms to describe them actually doing it. So in this, it's take all of your father's gold and all your mother's money and steal the keys to your father's stable with 30 steeds and tree. She took all of her father's gold and all her mother's money. She stole the keys of her father's stable with 30 steeds and tree. Um, and then there is the other form of what we call, um, and it's an, I suppose it's another kind of repetition, but incremental repetition, whereby the same lines are used again, only changed very slightly, like very much related to um, what we saw there with the parallelism of speech and language. Um, yeah, I suppose I'll, I'll give this one a shot. This is False Lover John. <clears throat> oh, False Lover John, he courted me for every hour in the day. He courted me unto such degree as I hadn't one word to say. It's take all of your father's gold and all your mother's money and steal the keys to your father's stable with thirty steeds and tree. She took all of her father's gold and all her mother's money, and she stole the keys to her father's stable with thirty steeds and tree. They mounted on a milk-white steed, rode on by the clear silver light of the moon, until they reached the river bank, and it's there they did get down. It's lie you hear, Miss Michaeline, this night along with me. For it's here I drowned seven king's daughters, the eighth one shall you be. Take off all those lovely clothes, leave them on the dry land, for they were too rich and costly for to rot on the salt sea strand. O oh, turn around, false John, she said, to view the green leaves on the tree, for it ill becomes a learned man, a naked young maid to see. O oh, false lover John, he turned around to view the green leaves on the tree. And she caught him by the middle so tight and flung him into the deep. O oh, throw me in your noble hand, 
Lead me on to dry land And there isn't a vow that ever I made I'll double them all in one Oh, lie you there, false John, she said An ill death may you die For you sought to drown me as I was born And take my clothes away She mounted on a milk-white steed Rode on by the clear silver light of the moon Until she reached her father's gate And it's there she did get down She put the steeds into the stable The money in where it lay And there wasn't a lord in all the castle Knew Miss Michaeline away Out speaks the noble parrot from his cage where he lay, saying, What did I tell you, Miss Michaeline, before you went away? Oh, hold your tongue, my little parrot, and tell no tales on me. And your cage will be made of the beaten gold instead of a hazel tree. Out speaks the noble king from his chamber where he lay, saying, What does disturb my little parrot that prattled so long before day? The cats, they were at my back door for to worry me. And I was calling on Michaeline to scare those cats away. When maids are young, they do sleep sound and cannot be wakened by me. So sleep you on, my noble king, for the cats are all scared away. Thanks. <laughs> it's a really mad ending to that song. <laughs> Talking parrots, huh? Where would you get it? Um, so the next population group involved in this story that I want to talk about, that I could talk about like seriously all day, are the Irish travellers. Um, and I... I I think the Irish travellers are kind of very misunderstood, like in Ireland and outside of Ireland too. Um, they, yeah, I suppose since 2017, they've been recognised in Ireland as an ethnic minority. But up until then, like the, the state's policy was to try and get them to give up their nomadic lifestyle and force them into a settled 
way of life, um, which has led to all kinds of, of problems for their, for their culture and to travelers as a people over the years. But speaking in 1975, Tom Munley, who I mentioned earlier, he said, I still try to be as objective as possible in my approach to any area and, where possible, cover all strata of the song-carrying community. But time and time again, I am drawn to the molly or traveler's camping ground before I begin to get results. Indeed, I have at times wondered if I am concentrating on the songs of the travelers to the extent of neglecting the buffer or settled people. But then, singers are so easy to find amongst traveling folk. So, the travelers, for a number of reasons, held on to traditional singing and traditional songs for a lot longer than the settled community, largely due to the fact that they like, live a nomadic lifestyle, they're pre-literate, um, so a lot of the older forms of entertainment, like storytelling and singing, just lasted a lot longer with them. Like When the settled community got radios and televisions, I think traditional music, storytelling, traditional singing, and a lot of that kind of stuff, really, like it was only a matter of time before that kind of died out in a way, you know. But um, travelers held on to it a lot longer, and in a lot of cases seem to have had a real predilection for like the longer narrative types of ballads. And there's a lot of these child ballads that um, travelers had in the repertoires that were very rare otherwise. Songs like Edward um, in the form of What Put the Blood, Willia Winsbury, um, Lampkin, where the t name False Lankham comes from, from a traveler version. And there's two other ballads, um, Young Hunting and the Two Brothers that were only found in travelers' repertoires. And another one that I want to look at, which only ever sprung up in the repertoire of one man who was a traveler. Um, that man was John Riley, pictured here. Um, now, it, it's hard to believe, but John Riley was only in his early 40s when this picture was taken. So hard and, and rough was his life. He was living rough on the streets of Boyle, County Roscommon, when Tom Unley came across him in 1965. So there was a flat hole going on in the town. And I heard this story from a fellow who was there. He was in the pub with Tom Unley, and they were kind of looking out for songs. And Tom Unley said, I'm going down to the, ro the road. I'm going to try and find to see his Ronnie Good singing going on. And he came back about 10 minutes later, and he's like, I'm after finding this amazing singer down the road. He has these amazing songs. And some local fellow who was in the pub with him, he was like, oh, that's just John Riley. Don't, don't mind him. He's not, like, he's not a proper singer. He doesn't have the Shanos or whatever. But it turned out like he had a really, really amazing store of songs that he had learned, mostly from his parents, from his father, I think, in the main. But the most remarkable aspect of John Riley's repertoire was that he had a version of a song that was believed to have been extinct for the last 150 years. Um, that song, it's in Child's Collection as The Maid and The Palmer. It's number 21. But John Riley had it as The Well Below The Valley. Um, in the English and Scottish popular ballads, there's only one full version and a fragment. I think the full version is from Percy's Reliques, so back in 1765 that was published, and then the fragment that's there, it's like a three-verse fragment that was from the Scottish oral culture in the early 1800s, I think, if I'm remembering correctly. But um, yeah, so it had been 150 year, years or more, people were like, that's extinct, that's out of the tradition. So when this appeared, um, 
this man singing it in Boyle County, Roscommon, like people's minds were absolutely blown. Um, it was amazing. I think a lot of people didn't believe it was it was true. Even nowadays, if you there's this website called mudcat.org. Uh, there's, there's basically all these old men arguing with each other on it all the time. <laughs> but sometimes they, so, some of them are still like, oh, there's no way John Riley could have known this. Like he definitely must have read it out of a book. Um, just, you know, he, John Riley had never been to school. He never learned to read or write or anything. Um, he had all these amazing long ballads in his head that he'd, he'd learned from memory. And interestingly as well, he seemed to embody this um, the oral formulaic approach as put forward by scholars like David Buchan. He talked about how traditional singers in the past, they would have like these building blocks of ballads, like they would have the common places and stuff like that in their heads. But when it came to singing a ballad, they would essentially recreate the ballad every time they sang it. They would have the very the rough architecture of the story, but every time they sang it, it would be different in a certain way. And I know that David Buchan has his detractors as well, but um, it seemed to be what John Riley had because there's another recording. I'm going to play a, basically play a version of him singing the song now, but there's another recording of him singing it a couple of years later where he sings it to a different tune and he uses different verses and he changes this around. So he kind of seemed to um, embody this approach. Um, but the song itself, I'll just say it's um, the maid and the palmer child had it as, it seems to be um, like, I think there's like continental versions whereby the woman in the song is Mary Magdalene and she is approached by someone described as a palmer. A palmer was someone who had been to Palestine and come back or something like that. But um, she's approached by this palmer who is like, I know what you've done. I know you had babies and you killed them and you buried them here and you buried them there and I know what's going to happen to you. You're going to go to hell and you're going to get this punishment for seven years and this punishment for seven years. And in the, in the, in the ballads, it's supposed to be Jesus that she's talking to. Um, but this song it was very taboo, apparently, amongst the travelers because of the themes of incest and infanticide and stuff like that. But um, the well below the valley, anyway, this is John Riley. A gentleman, he was passing by. He asked a drink, you see, got dry at a well below the valley. Oh, green rolled a lily, oh, right among the bushes. Oh, my cup. It is in overflow and of I to stoop I may fall in at the well below the valley oh green rolled the lily oh right among the bushes oh well if your true love was passing by you'd fill him a drink of he got dry at the well Below the valley, oh, green grows the lily, oh, right among the bushes, oh. Well, if you're a man's noble theme, you'll tell to me the father read him at a well below the valley, oh, green grows the lily, oh. Right among the bushes, oh. 
To all them come by your uncle down at the well below the valley, oh. Green grows the lily, oh, right among the bushes, oh. Another one by your bread, there John at the well below the valley, oh. Green grows the lily, oh. Right among the bushes, oh. Well, as you're a man of the noble steam, you'll tell to me what'll happen, my cell at the well below the valley, oh. Green grows the lily, oh. Right among the bushes, oh. You'll be selfing your roaring in a bell at the well. Below the valley, oh, green grows the lily, oh, right among the bushes, oh. You'll be selling more, oh, porting in hell at the well below the valley, oh, green grows the lily, oh, right among the bushes, oh. I'll be seven years roaring in a bell, but the Lord above me save my soul from porting and hell at the well below the valley, oh. Green grows the lily, oh, right among the bushes, oh. Yeah, that was John Roydy. Um, so you might think that finding one ballad long believed to be extinct in the Irish tradition was enough for Tom Munley, but it happened to him again in 1969, and it was with a song called uh, Child Has It As Prince Robert, but when Tom Munley found it in Ireland, uh, that had become Lord Abor and Mary Flynn, um, much more Hiberno sounding. So in, I think in the child version, it's Prince Robert and Fair Ellen, and that's what became Lord Abor and Mary Flynn. But um, he's a really great story about how he came to find this song. He says, unfortunately, the tune was never noted by the collectors. As all of child's texts were early 19th century, the ballad was thought to be traditionally extinct. This being the case, you can imagine how thunderstruck I was when I heard it being sung in a Dublin pub in 1969. The singer was Jim Kelly, who learned it from Frank Feeney, who in turn had it from his late wife, a Carla woman. Um, and this is really, yeah, I, I love this song. It has another few examples of incremental repetition that I mentioned earlier. And one other thing that I mentioned but didn't explain, and that's the use of the commonplace. So essentially, the commonplace in these ballads it's using the same like stock phrase to describe an incident of a similar nature from ballad to ballad. Um, like people, this can be like a phrase, it can be a line, or it can be a whole verse. When it's a whole verse, it's sometimes called a floating verse because it kind of just goes between ballad to ballad and it can pop up anywhere. Um, so essentially, a commonplace, it's a stock phrase to describe incidences of a similar nature, really. It's like probably the most common, one of the most common commonplace you'll find is the description of the rose and the briar coming out of the two doomed lovers' graves, like in Barbara Allen and Growing Up Together. Or there's another one, actually, that there is a reflection of in the following song, whereby when 
the hero or somebody else goes to ride a horse somewhere. They never just get the horse and get on it, but instead they'll be like, oh, saddle me the white horse, saddle me the brown horse, and I'm going to get on the quickest one, and then I'm going to go. And it's just the, like this kind of formulaic way of describing the same thing that pops up in so many different songs. Um, but yeah, I'll, you'll, you'll, hear, you'll, you'll hear it when the verse comes along in this one. This is Lord Abor and Mary Flynn. <clears throat> Lord Abor and Mary Flynn, the two were children young. They were scarcely fourteen years of age. When love between them sprung, when love between them sprung. That's a bit low, actually. I'm going to start again. Uh, Lord Abore and Mary Flynn, the two were children young. They were scarcely fourteen years of age. When love between them sprung, when love between them sprung. Now Lord Abore was going out one day, when his mother came to know you are going away my son she said you will drink before you go you will drink before you go she called for a cask of the very best wine and filled a glass for him. To her false, her false, with her two fingers, she put strong poison in. She put strong poison in. Oh, why, oh, why, dear mother, he said, have you poisoned me full sore? It is so, my son, she said to him. You'll see Mary Flynn no more. You'll see Mary Flynn no more. Is there anybody in this household, he said, would go on an errand for me? Who would ride to Mary Flynn's high tower and fetch her here to me? And fetch her here to me. And then up spoke a young serving boy, I'm your faithful servant, cried he. 
I will write Mary Flynn's high tower and fetch her here to thee and fetch her here to thee. And when he came to Mary Flynn's tower and stepped into the hall, oh, the tables were laid and the music played and the ladies dancing all and the ladies dancing all what brought you here my pretty little boy what brought you here to me has my grandmother set a place for you, nor yet invited thee, nor yet invited thee? Your grandmother set no place for me, nor invited me, he said. It was then that Mary Flynn came to know that Lord Abor was dead, that Lord Abor was dead. Come saddle to me the swiftest steed, come saddle for me the bay, so I may ride to my true love's side without the least delay without the least delay. And when she came to Lord Abor's tower and stepped into the hall, oh, the tables were laid and the sheets were spread and the torches burning all and the torches burning all what brought you here mary flynn she said what brought you here to me oh the ring that's on his little finger i came to crave of thee i came to crave of thee no ring no ring mary flynn she said no ring have I for thee, for the pain of death it came so quick. It split the ring in tree, it split the ring in tree. 
She laid her feet down by his feet, her side down by his side. She laid her feet down by his feet. Then Mary Flynn, she died. Then Mary Flynn, she died. Thanks. Um, <clears throat> so one thing you hear about Professor Francis James Child sometimes is, is a kind of complicated view of broadside ballads. Um, basically broadsides, if you don't know, were songs that were printed on cheap slips of paper and sold for a penny on the streets. Very, like the whole culture of street literature and broadside ballads was huge in England particularly. I think it kind of reached its apex in the 18th and 19th centuries and Ireland was a little bit behind but it was very popular in Ireland as well. Um, but Child, his whole view of broadside ballads was very ambivalent um, because you had basically sometimes you had, there was like hacks, there was these hack writers who were just like, coming out with just ballads day after day and they were getting printed on broadsides and some of them are just absolute trash, like they're just crap. Um, but sometimes they, they would have good ones that would take off in the oral culture and they would get learned by people and they would become a whole part of the whole traditional stream. But also you had the converse whereby sometimes you would have traditional ballads that ended up on ballad sheets. And because of this, I think Child couldn't discount them completely. Um, but there's a really, really great quote about this, where he said, the immense collections of broadside ballads, the Roxburgh and Peeps, of which but a small part has been printed, doubtless contain some ballads which we should at once declare to possess the popular character, and yet on the whole, they are veritable dunghills, in which only after a great deal of sickening grubbing one finds a very moderate jewel. <laughs> it's absolutely hilarious. So despite the fact that he completely, like, he, he, he pretended that he hated them because he actually used quite a lot in the English and Scottish ballads. Um, quite a few of his A versions, I think, were based on broadsides. And I think his kind of rule of thumb was that if a song's traditional status had been corroborated externally, then he would use the broadside but not the other way around, unless it was a Robin Hood ballad, because that was the only way he could get some of the Robin Hood ballads, and I think 31 out of 36 of them were from broadside, so he bent the rules a little bit. Um, but in Ireland, there were quite a few child ballads that were printed on broadsides in the 18th century, but from the 19th century onwards, there was only really one, and this was a song, like it was like a number one hit in Ireland like throughout the... 1800s, um, it was huge. But the name of the song was the Dark-Eyed Gypsy. It was a version of the Gypsy Laddie, which is child number 200. Um, it was printed by Birmingham in Dublin in around 1860. And the version that was printed is pretty much exactly the same as it was sung in the north of Ireland um, and is still sung today. Um, so I'll give that one a shot. Um, 
I learned this from a singer called Michal Quinn. He's from um, up in County Armagh. It's like the Dark Eyed Gypsy. <coughs> oh yeah, it's got the commonplace about the horses as well. <laughs> oh, there were three gypsies lived in the east and they were brought and the bonnie and they sang so sweet at the castle gate I'm after starting that one too high Started the other one too low. Sorry about that. Uh, I'll start again. <laughs> oh, there were three gypsies lived in the east, and they were brought and the bonnie and they sang so sweet at the castle gate that they won the heart of the lady Well, she gave to them of the sparkling wine, and she gave to them of the brandy, oh, and the gay gold ring that the lady she gave to the dark Egyptio. When the Lord of the castle he came in, all inquiring for his lady, gone she is gone said the young serving boy she's away with the dark egyptio come saddle to me the swift steed the bay is ne'er so speedy oh i will ride all the day and the whole 
long night till I find my own wedded lady. Oh, well, Charles put spores into his heart. And oh, how he rode so speedy, oh, until he fell in with his own wedded love in the arms of the dark Egypt. Are you going to forsake your house and your land? Are you going to forsake your children tree? I would leave them all for the one I love and I'll follow the dark Egypt sea Last night I lay on the fine feather bed with my own wedded Lord beside me, oh, but this night I lie on the cold barren floor in the arms of me dark Egyptio. Uh, thanks very much. Um, there's a lot more stuff I can talk about. Just <laughs> trying to decide whether I should like start bringing it to an end. Um, no, okay. Um, just one more little thing I want to look at. Um, I don't think I could do like a presentation on the child ballads in Ireland without looking at the very, very small group of songs that were translated into the Irish language. Um, really just like a handful of ballads. Um, but probably the most, most well-known one is Lord Randall. Um, there's actually, I think there's like two or three different Irish language versions. But I'm going to play the next one. I think it's really not surprising that Lord Randall was one of the songs that made its way into the Irish language. Just because of the nature of the song, it's basically like a dialogue between a mother and her son. Um, and, well, when you look at what Tom Munley has to say about it, he said, the song tradition in the Irish language is essentially lyric 
and non-narrative. Where narrative occurs, there is a strong preference per, for presenting the action through dialogue, and this is basically the way Lord Randall plays out. Um, it's, yeah, I'm going to play Joe Heaney singing this because, my God, it's amazing. Um, on Tierna Randall, or Lord Randall, by Joe Heaney. I'm sure everyone knows the, or maybe you don't, I don't know, um, knows about this song. It's probably one of the more common forms that it's known in is Henry, my son. But, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to stop talking and just play this because it's amazing.
Okay, that just about sums it up. Um, <laughs> it's not you, you can't follow that, like. Um, but I just want to finish up by saying, uh, I mean, I, I, I love child ballads. I think they're great. I think I love singing them. I think they, oh, I don't know, like. I think that like the kind of milieu in which they happen, it's like this kind of like has an ancient aristocratic kind of feel. And I, 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 I'm sure that even people singing them back in the 17th century, to them they sounded old, do you know what I mean? Um, and I don't think it's hard to see why people are still into singing them today. But just to round it off, the man that we heard at the start of the lecture, Thomas Moran, um, I'm actually friends with his great grandson, and it's this man here, Alan Woods, still singing songs today. And he's singing a song here called The Widow of Westmoreland. Oh, there were a widow woman from the Westmorelands, and she ne'er had a daughter but the one. And her only advice by night or by day was to ne'er give her maidenhead to one. It didn't actually make it into the Hold your tongue like, there, mother, she says, and therefore done let it be. For there were a jolly soldier in the Queen's lifeguard last night stole me maidenhead from me. That's why. There's quite a number of songs I think that should have made it into the English and Scottish ballads like that and the codfish, but obviously the child was of a delicate nature. Um, but anyway, uh, thanks a million for listening. It's been a real pleasure to come and talk about all this and sing songs for you. And uh, thanks very much. Diddle-diddle-diddle-diddle-dum. <laughs>